Christ is risen. You all keep saying that. You know what? I think you get it. So let's just all go have brunch. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. We would never want to miss an opportunity to celebrate the day that changed the world forever. Never miss an opportunity to celebrate the event that changed the eternal destiny for so many people forever. We never want to miss an opportunity to celebrate that Jesus and that tomb is empty and that the resurrection is everything for every place and for everyone. And that's what we celebrate this morning, the reality of that. The resurrection is everything. It is for every place and it is for every person. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we come to Acts chapter 17. So I ask you now, if you have your Bibles with you, if not, there should be one in the pew in front of you. If you would turn in the New Testament to the book of Acts, the 17th chapter, and when you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, this is the word of the Lord. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Now let's go to verse 29. Paul's continuing to preach. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice, By the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask now, once again, as we ask every week, that you would fulfill your promise to bless the reading and hearing of your holy word. Thank you, O Spirit of God, that you bring life to our souls and that by your power you teach us your truth from your word. And the truth that you teach, you apply to our hearts. So we open ourselves up to you this morning, to your word, to your truth. And ask for that transformation that you seek to bring in each of our lives. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
And I'm hearing a little uh, feedback that's driving me nuts. Thank you, Joel. <laughs> Truly, the gospel is everything. In his book, Miracles, C.S. Lewis writes this. The resurrection is the central theme in every Christian sermon reported in the Acts. The resurrection and its consequences were the gospel, the good news which the Christians brought. The miracle of the resurrection and the theology of that miracle comes first. The first fact in the history of Christendom is a number of people who say they have seen the resurrection. The resurrection is everything. Without it, what do you have? A Thomas Jefferson Bible that ended with the crucifixion and a dead Jesus? What hope is in that? If Jesus is dead, if he's not resurrected to life, how is he that much different from any other person who ever lived or died, comparatively speaking? What can he do for us? What can he do for you that is qualitatively or quantitatively, that much different from what anyone else can do. The resurrection, it's everything. The liberal theology in liberal denominations that for multiple decades has been marked by a disbelief in the inspiration of Scripture, a denial of both the virgin birth and the physical resurrection of Christ from the dead, they are now reaping the results of that hopeless theology. Even statistics point to the fact that the resurrection is everything. One liberal denomination of two million people lost 200,000 of them last year. In an op-ed for the New York Times, a columnist wrote this. Practically every denomination that has tried to adapt itself to contemporary liberal values has seen a plunge in church attendance, something between a decline and a collapse. And he describes liberal churches as flexible to the point of indifference on dogma, friendly to sexual liberation in almost every form, willing to blend Christianity with other faiths, and eager to downplay theology entirely in favor of secular political causes. And as a result, he speaks of the looming extinction of these denominations. My goal is not to bash anyone, but is to truly and sincerely ask this question, why bother? If you don't believe in the resurrection, why believe at all? Or what is it that you do believe? It seems to me that it would be a whole lot easier to be a good Kiwanis or, or Rotary Club member. Seriously. It comes with a lot less guilt and you get Sunday mornings off. That's a bonus. Without the resurrection, we have nothing but hopelessness. And that dead hope was vividly portrayed in those two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus after Jesus was crucified. They stayed in Jerusalem three days, but then they left. They walked along the road, and Scripture said as they walked, their faces were downcast. Their hope was dead. They said that Jesus was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all people. They said we had hope that He was the one who was going to be the Redeemer, but they crucified Him. 
And so their hope was dead. The hope that had been at a fever pitch a week before. He's the one. He's the one. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That hope died as quickly as it took to beat Jesus and crucify him on the cross. Human hope dies just that quickly. And that's why the resurrection and its superhuman hope is everything. And since the resurrection is everything, listen to what the Lord has done for us. Luke tells us back in chapter 1 of Acts that after his suffering, Jesus showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Paul fills out that story a little more in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me. See, God didn't keep the resurrection a secret because the resurrection is everything. God could have brought Jesus back to life and whisked him off immediately into heaven to be with the Father. Had he done that? Christ's sacrifice would still have been sufficient to pay for our sins, still sufficient to gain an entrance into the presence of God for us. But God wants his people, God wants you and me to know the truth of the resurrection, that we might have hope, that we might have faith, that we might have peace. And so Jesus gave many convincing proofs over the course of 40 days. Proofs like eating real food in the presence of his disciples. Proof as holding out his hands and saying, touch the place where the nails went. Exposing his side and saying, see, here is the wound I received from the Roman spear that was thrust there to make sure that I was dead. Why all of this proof? Because the resurrection is everything. And so we come to Paul in Athens. And our text for this morning, this bastion of education, cutting-edge thinking, and what do we discover? Look at the very end of verse 18. Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. That's what he preached. Why? Because the resurrection is everything. Look at the end of verse 31. God has given proof of all this to all men by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. The resurrection is everything. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So you see that the resurrection is the the, the point of debarkation. The resurrection is the place where some people get off the ship. I'm out of here. But others are inspired to keep sailing because the resurrection is everything. So if you will have any hope this morning, hope for yourself, hope for anyone else, hope that change can come, hope that you can be a better person, hope that this world can be a better place, hope that there's an even better place beyond this world than you must believe in the physical resurrection of Christ from the dead. It is our only hope. Apart from it, we have nothing. 
Paul also writes, continues writing in 1 Corinthians 15. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then all those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, believing in Him, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The resurrection is everything. It's our only hope. As we continue this morning, we'll see that the resurrection is also for every place. When Paul got to Athens, he didn't hole up in his hotel room with the remote in his hand. While he waited for Silas and Timothy to join him, he intentionally got out into the city. Because Paul wanted to see what made the city tick. What were the major cultural influencers in that city? And he was greatly distressed by what he saw. uh, The overwhelming, inordinate amount of idols that he saw everywhere he looked in Athens. To all kinds of gods. And just to make sure that they had all their bases covered and that they were properly inclusive, as every progressive city should be, They even included an idol to an unknown God. (laughs) You know, just in case we forgot somebody. It was manifestly evident to Paul that this city needed the gospel. So what did he do? He took the message of the gospel and the resurrection of Christ to every place. Look with me in verse 17. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. Paul went... First, to the religious people, and he reasoned with them about the resurrection. I wish we had time this morning to talk about the reasonableness of the resurrection and the place that proclaiming uh, uh, the resurrection has in our world, but we don't. And at the risk of overquoting C.S. Lewis this morning, I'm going to overquote C.S. Lewis this morning anyway, because he writes this All that I need to do here is to point out that at the very worst, This evidence for faith in Christ, the evidence cannot be so weak as to warrant the view that all whom it convinces are indifferent to evidence. The history of thought seems to make this quite plain. We know, in fact, that believers are not not cut off from unbelievers by any inferiority of intelligence. Did you get that? We're not cut off from unbelievers by inferiority of intelligence or by any perverse refusal to think. Many of them have been people of powerful minds. Many of them have been scientists. We may suppose them to be mistaken, but we must suppose that their error was at least plausible. And so we don't have to dismiss our intellect to be a believer in Christ and in His resurrection. Certainly Paul believed the reality of Jesus. And he believed that it was not only for the heart, but it was for the mind as well. Because the resurrection belongs in every place, he went first to God's people. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it, that you would preach the resurrection to religious people, to God's people, but given some of the statistics we heard earlier, we see that that's where it belongs. Even among us, right here, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. We've got to be asking ourselves, who is it reasonable for us to be? 
and what is reasonable for us to do in light of the resurrection and the power it provides. Who is it reasonable for us to believe we should be? What is it reasonable that we should do because of the power of the resurrection? Because the resurrection and power, they go hand in hand. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of the resurrection. The New Living Translation puts it this way. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. The God power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that God makes available to us, to you and to me, his people, to us as a church, by his spirit that indwells us. Because the church, this church, our church, is to be a place of power. Power to build a kingdom. Power to defeat any inferior power that would prevent us from building that kingdom. The resurrection and its power is everything to us. And it belongs in this place. So if this church, if any church is anemic, If a church has no power, if a church has no impact at all upon its community, that church must ask itself, has the reality of the resurrection taken its proper place in this place? We have to ask, where do we see? Where do we see resurrection power at work in this place? What is it that we are seeking resurrection power for? Assuming, of course, that we're seeking that power for something. The resurrection, along with its power, belongs here. But it's not limited to this place, to the church walls. It belongs every place. So look with me again in verse 17. It says there that Paul reasoned in the synagogues with the religious people, and then he moved to the marketplace. And day by day he reasoned there with those who happened to be there, not just on the Sabbath, not just one day a week, but every day, Paul presented the resurrection in the marketplace. We don't have a description of what that looks like. I don't know if Paul found a convenient spot beside a vendor, and that's where he sat day after day. Maybe the vendors themselves were his target. He talked to them between customers. I don't know. Maybe he he roamed the streets looking for someone to present the gospel to. I don't know, and it doesn't really matter. What's important for us to get this morning is that Paul saw that the reasonableness of the resurrection belongs in the marketplace. Do we believe that? See, we are wrong. We are wrong. If we're culled from the real world by the idea of separation of church and state, or by this imaginary line that separates the secular from the sacred, how can you even do that? The resurrection and its power is part of Who you are, how do you separate your soul from yourself? Jesus and his resurrection shape our thinking, and they shape our acting, and it it shapes, shapes our speaking as well. And to every place that you and I go, as believers in Christ, we carry the gospel with us. We should not let anyone shut that gospel out. Forboden signs kept the Jews out Germany no blacks allowed signs in the windows around this country we, we, we imagine that those signs exist for us no gospel no gospel allowed here we are wrong 
to be conditioned by that thought. Just as Paul took the good news to the marketplace, so must we. Of course we're sensitive to our setting. But gospel-infused thoughts and gospel-infused language and gospel-infused resurrection-empowered actions, they are for every place. And so this morning as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, we have to ask, how are we doing with that? How are you doing with that? Do you have a divided heart? Are you right now, in this moment, living a divided life? Do you believe that the gospel is just for this place, but not another place? If that's what you believe, or perhaps you don't believe that, but that's how you behave, then then we need to ask the Lord to recondition our thinking, and recondition our acting, and recondition our speaking with the truth that we serve a risen Savior. Do you believe that? What is the place? Tell me, name it. The place where the resurrection does not belong. 2 Corinthians 15. Therefore, if anyone is is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself and Christ not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Ambassadors don't stay in. Ambassadors go out. That's what they are. And so should you and so should I go out to all places with the good news of the resurrection. Because the good news of the resurrection of Jesus belongs in every place. And you and I have been given in in a very specific way a privilege to share. We share this privilege with creation. It serves this role in a general way. You and I are called in a specific way to do this. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no language. There is no speech, no language, for their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. There is no language where the glory of God, displayed in the resurrection of Christ, does not belong. It translates into every language. God says so. There is no place where the glory of God displayed in the resurrection of Christ does not belong. It's to permeate all the earth to the ends of the world. You and I have on this resurrection morning to remember that the gospel belongs everywhere and that God has given us a position to be its proclaimers in all places, here in this city or wherever it is that you call home. As the much-loved Christmas carol reminds us, We take the message, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. Where is the curse found? In that place belongs the message of the resurrection of Christ. Finally this morning, you are being very good and very patient, captive audience. The resurrection is everything. It belongs in every place and every person. Look again in verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with Paul 
I'm not going to bore you or enlighten you now with the specifics of what these two philosophies believed and their distinctives, other than to say that both of them had been around about 200 years by the time Paul came to Athens, and they were firmly established and well-respected in the Athens culture. Well, Paul went toe-to-toe with both of these philosophies. He wasn't afraid. Well, these philosophers, in turn, took Paul to the Areopagus, this place where all the intellectuals hung out, this place where all the philosophers hung out. All they did all day was talk about the latest ideas. They took Paul there, and when Paul got there, what did he do? He preached the resurrection. Silly Paul. Surely Paul should have known that the resurrection does not belong in a conversation with these really intellectual people or these really deep philosophical thinkers. But Paul knew that it did belong there. And Paul didn't soft pedal the resurrection or the gospel. He didn't preach Jesus as a good guy, though Jesus was a good guy. He didn't just preach him as a moral man, though we know Jesus was without sin. He didn't present him. He was a really great teacher, though he was the greatest teacher of all. Paul preached the really hard stuff, the intellectually embarrassing stuff. Jesus and him crucified and him resurrected. That's what he preached. Why did he preach it? What was Paul's gain? Well, we know what his loss was. Certainly he lost the respect of thinkers that Paul would believe such a thing. Just as we are often experienced, sidelined, ridiculed, dismissed by the intellectuals because of his faith. We know Paul didn't get rich from preaching the gospel. He didn't establish a comfortable life for himself. In fact, he writes about being in prison and being flogged and being exposed to death and danger over and over again. Going without food, going without sleep, going without water, being cold and naked. That was Paul's life because he preached the resurrection. So why did he do it? What did he get out of it? Why did Paul care what these people believed? Why would he bother to attempt to change their beliefs anyway? Simply for this reason. Because Paul himself had experienced the life-changing reality of the resurrection. Paul's life is one of the most compelling reasons to believe in the resurrection. It was powerful enough to make him do what not one person in this room likes to do. And I know there's no one here in this room this morning who likes to do this, to say, I was wrong. If you claim to do that, I'm going to ask your spouse, and then you will be busted. You will be. You know, I'm telling the truth. But Paul was wrong. Wrong to persecute Christians. Wrong to hunt them down. Wrong to arrest Christians and have them put to death. He was wrong to have it as a goal for his life that he would stamp out Christianity and prevent the preaching of the resurrection of Christ. But then everything changed because the reality of the resurrection changes everything. Paul experienced it for himself. And he was a changed man. The old passed away and all things became new. The old bitterness disappeared. The hate that drove him forward, hunting these Christians, it was gone. In its place was love and peace. And now Paul writes things like this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. He writes things like love, love one another deeply and from the heart. The passage tells us that some to whom Paul preached believed because the gospel has the power to change anyone in any place and in any time. 
When's the last time you bumped into an Epicurean? Raise your hand. When's the last one you saw? Did you meet one this morning? No, you didn't. Because they are extinct. But the resurrection is not. It survived. It survived the Enlightenment and the enlightened thinkers of the 17th and 18th century. It survived the romantics of the 19th century. It survived modernism and postmodernism of the 20th century. And it will survive the presentism, which has been pejoratively called pseudo-modernism. Because you know what? Philosophies come and go. You people who are young right now, y'all are hip and cool. You're on the cutting edge of everything, but just wait a few years because who you are and what you believe, soon enough it will be ridiculed and called antiquated and irrelevant. But the gospel marches on in resurrection power. The transforming power of the resurrection remains this morning. We stood together and we confessed what we believed using the Apostles' Creed. Christians have been doing that almost unchanged around the world for almost two thousand years it's not going anywhere so what in light of that reality we tell the story of the resurrection to everyone we tell it stoics enlightenment romantic modern postmodern doesn't matter why now look in verse 29 please look in verse 29 we're almost done and god's people said amen verse 29 Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. God is not the creation of human imagining. God is not a passing human theology. He is God. He is God. And there is no other. He's not served by human hands. Passage tells us he gives life to all men and breath and everything else. For in him we live and move and have our being. Now look in verse 30. This is the most important message of the day. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Those are the man-made idols. But now, since Christ, God commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is proof that every person in this room should repent. God is a just God. And God will judge the world with justice. And this is what his justice looks like. This is what God's justice looks like. You and I, along with all people of all times, are sinners. That is our greatest problem. Sin is our rebellion against God. Our refusal to submit to his authority. Our refusal to live life the way God has told us to live our lives. Now God could leave us alone. And God can let us die in our sinful, rebellious state. But that's not the kind of God he is. He's a God of love and grace and compassion and mercy. A God who desires to have a relationship with us. And so God 
implemented a plan whereby we could experience that relationship. His plan was this. He came to earth himself in the person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross to satisfy the debt that our sin had incurred. And from the cross, with his last breaths, Jesus proclaimed, it is finished. The debt is paid in full. Then God assures us that that is actually what happened. Those weren't empty words from the cross. The debt really is paid. Jesus' death really did perfectly satisfy God's justice that cannot let sin go unpunished. And he proved that by raising Jesus from the dead. That's God's proof. So what's our response? We repent. We turn away from a life of rebellious sin and we turn in faith. And we believe in the resurrection of Christ, the proof that that Jesus is the Son of God and the only Savior for sinners like you and like me. That's what's required of all people at all places for all time. And when that happens, when we make that turn, when we repent, when we, by faith, embrace Christ, we are given a resurrection power to live a transformed life. And we are given the ability to look forward, to look forward to the coming judgment of God without fear. Why? Because we are in Christ. He has paid the debt completely. He has done what we could not do for ourselves. His resurrection life proves that you and I will have resurrection life. His ascension to the Father in heaven proves that you and I will also ascend to be with the Father. That's why the resurrection is everything. It's good news. And that's why we must tell Jesus' resurrection story everywhere, in all places. And that's why we must tell Jesus' resurrection story to every person. And this is why we must repent, believe the resurrection, And it's tremendous power to change us and to change the world through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the reality of the resurrection. You, Lord Jesus, were physically raised from the dead, from death to life. It's not that the disciples believed that you were raised when you actually weren't. That's not what's important. What's important is what they believe. No, what's important is uh, the objective reality. You were dead, and you rose to life. So the implications of that, Lord, are that we should repent. Through your resurrection, you have demonstrated your power. Through your resurrection, you have demonstrated that the plan that you put into place has worked that you are the one and only, the only necessary, the the only uh, sacrifice that could ever be acceptable to pay the debt that we owe. And so we repent. We say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thank you for paying a price that was way too much, way more than we had in our account to pay, but you paid it for us. So Father, I pray that we would be people of repentance. For those of us who believe in you and have turned to you in faith, Lord, repent of of the powerlessness by which we live our lives as if we don't serve a risen Savior. Help us to believe in your resurrection power. 
Lord, for those here this morning that I don't even know, maybe they are Christers here, people who only come to church on Christmas and Easter. Lord, if there are those here this morning who do not believe, have never believed in the resurrection of Christ, if they've never been convinced of their need to turn in faith to you, to forgiveness, I pray now, Lord, that your resurrection power would be at work in their hearts and their lives. Help them to believe the gospel, to embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. Pray for them and for all of us now, in Jesus' name, amen.